Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I have been around cybersecurity for the last 20 years and I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory for companies. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I've been intrigued to learn how a company starts. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have George here from OneUp. George, please tell me about yourself and the company. Uh, hey, Evgeny, it's George, founder and CEO of OneUp. I'm based in New York. Company's been around for, I think, a little under two years now. You guys have a very interesting space. There's a lot of controversy about AI, the use of AI, and you started before ChatGPT and everything went nuts, realized, oh, AI, AI, but AI been around for a long time. So tell me a bit about the company, what do you guys do? So OneUp is the AI for go-to-market teams. So sales and marketing teams ask questions, complicated questions about product, technology, how they should respond to customers. And if you've ever worked with the GTM team, you know that these questions can't be Googled. They rely on a lot of internal knowledge. It's very hard to automate these queries. And what ends up happening is you need a human to answer them. And people know that no matter how much content we create for the sales team, they're still going to ask and it's still going to distract a human. So the idea with OneUp is how much of that can we automate? So we built OneUp. OneUp is an AI that enables sales and marketing teams to ask anything about their company, their products, their competitors. It's been really cool getting it off the ground. Our users are primarily tech companies, sales and marketing orgs all across the globe. And man, it's been really exciting because this is a pain point I personally had for many years and watching it get automated is just like the greatest feeling in the world. I saw the demo and I like the idea that you're not just tapping to the website, but you can tap into internal documents to internal technical systems, knowledge base, Slack, and many things. So you have all the data you need to actually answer this information. And AI is great with data you have. I think people think AI is great with unknown data, but actually AI is great when you have the data and you want to sort it quickly and summarize it quickly. Yeah, listen, I think that people are swimming in data and especially when you think of internal knowledge bases, the problem with a lot of knowledge bases is that they create more work than they solve. So you have to constantly update this knowledge base, maintain it, make sure people are using it. And that's a whole other nightmare. So I think with AI, we're moving into this realm of knowledge automation. So I think knowledge management is how it's been done for many years with one up we'd like to see knowledge automation really get to the mainstream. So yeah, there's a lot of exciting stuff being done there. And I think that's the next phase of enterprise productivity. So let's dive into the main question of the show. What was the motivation to start the company? Oh, it was pain, nonstop pain. I had the privilege of working with one of the best enterprise sales teams in tech. And I love these people. They are so good at what they do. But when you work with the sales org, you realize that they're constantly starving for information. They either don't have the info that they need when they need it, or they have too much info and it's hard to make sense of it. I felt this pain every day and I observed how these reps and BDRs and sales engineers and even marketing managers just constantly feel this pain of information. And that was the motivation for creating OneUp. A couple of years ago, we spoke to well over 100 personas before we wrote a single line of code. And we wanted to understand if they had this problem too. 
Why wasn't it solved? Why weren't the existing tools helping? And we got to building. We launched one up a few months ago, and we were really happy to hear that exact pain point is what people see that one up can solve. So still a long way to go, but I think we're on the right track. So you mentioned you spoke with hundreds of people. This is what we call market validation because idea is great. You all have ideas every day, but before you go on the validate that people are actually going to use it and buy it, then what's the point to build it? How hard it was to go and ask people opinion? Because people always claim people don't want to talk to each other. Everybody's very busy. I think it depends on who you ask and why you're asking. If you reach out to someone and you're trying to sell them something, yeah, they're busy, right? But if you reach out to them and you say, hey, I'm building something new and I would love your feedback and your thoughts on how much this is a pain point for you. You'll be surprised, man. People love to talk. People love to hear themselves talk. People love to share ideas. Having worked in tech, I had the privilege of having an awesome network of sales and marketing professionals. So we reached out, got a ton of great feedback, ideas, and we learned a lot. We learned how much pain there really was. And in some cases, I've met people who were like, I don't even think this is a solvable problem. So being able to come back to them with one up and show it to them is just such a great feeling. How many of these people become a design partners and now using technology on one drink? So I think there were a couple dozen folks who wanted the beta really early. And when we announced the beta, we got hundreds of signups. We had to be very selective about who we let in because as a small team, first of all, there's only so much you can handle, but also not everyone is a great fit early on. So for example, if you have a very big enterprise, and I learned this at my last company, a big enterprise can pull you in a lot of directions. And while they could be a great source of validation, they're not always the best source of product feedback and roadmap requests. Because what the big enterprise is asking for is not necessarily what the other hundred smaller medium businesses need. So we were very selective about who we let in. We got some great design partners. We got some great early beta testers. And those went on to becoming customers and power users. And they're still with us today. So I'm glad we did that. And I'm also glad that we were very, I'd say, picky about who we work with in the earliest stages. Let's go a bit back before you guys actually started to create one up. You check the idea. You like the idea. People like the idea. Now you need to hire your team. This is a tricky part. There's a lot of great people. We're still during the idea of kind of you started doing the pandemic. So it's probably remote. How do you hire people? How do you decide who to hire? How do you build a culture in the company that will sit and people are going to be happy here and you're going to be happy working with them as well? First of all, I think you got to be working on something cool. And I know that sounds like, what does that mean? It just means that it has to be something that people want to tell their friends that they're working on. I'll give you an example. When I met our lead data scientist, this was the height of the AI craze, and he was getting offers from a lot of places. I'm sure that he could have worked on anything that he set his mind to, but he told us straight up, he said, this sounds cool. This sounds like something that I can see and touch and demo and show, and I can see the UI and how it works and what people use it for. So I think that makes it exciting for someone to want to work on it, as opposed to especially in AI, being stuck working on some big data problem or some really deep technical things, which are on the one hand, really important and really lucrative, but on the other hand, they're not something you can always demo to your friends and family and show off. So as 
simple as this sounds, I think if you're working on something cool and it's something that people want to share with their friends and put on their Facebook and tell their families that they're working on, you will attract that talent. And that's just personally what I've seen with kind of the one-up branding and the messaging. I guess it's make easier. Was it hard to build a culture around people besides being the cool part to make sure you guys stick to the same ideas? Well, I think we are very customer driven. So the first thing you got to tell, especially at the early stages, is nobody here is driving the product more than the customer. So we all have great ideas. I have a wall full of ideas behind me. You can see it there. But ultimately, it's the user that decides and should be driving where this product is going. And they should be pulling you in that direction. So I think the problem is exciting for people and the solution and the product gets them excited. But ultimately, they have to understand from day one, it has to be embedded in the culture that this is a customer-driven roadmap. And you got to be very clear on that. Otherwise, you can get buried in just great ideas that might not necessarily have great product market fit. And that happens to a lot of startups. And I think expectations and what's normal in the company is very important. If it's normal to company to shift every week because you navigate this and it's also okay. And if you know that you potentially may change direction, it's also okay. People just need to know this is the culture of the company. Makes sense. When you're building a startup, there's a lot of things to do. There's the sales part, there's the technology part, there's the rating of the money part. Like, how do you handle everything? How do you handle all the tasks? Is there any tricks that you can share? It's like playing an RPG, a role-playing game, right? Everybody has their class. You have your wizard, you have your ninja, you have your mage, your knight, whatever, right? So when you have a small team of a half a dozen or a dozen people, I think about it like my party in an RPG. This person is great at product and day-to-day operations and messaging. That's what they should focus on, right? Use your points or your perks on those abilities. Don't give that person something that they shouldn't be doing. Even though we all wear a lot of hats, try not to overwhelm someone with stuff that's not in their specialty and their job class. So I look at it as you've got these people, you have very limited resources, but each of them has something that they can do 10 times better and more efficiently than someone else on the team. So when that thing comes up, you got to hand it out to them whenever you can take it on yourself. And that way you can maximize the output without overwhelming people with different projects. The other thing is try to get technical people early on. Everybody on the team writes code. Everybody. Even our designer, he's awesome. The guy writes code, right? So this is not something you typically get from the early stages. So I think that's another thing, if possible, when possible, try to get technical-minded people early on because it will pay huge dividends down the line especially when you're overwhelmed with roadmap requests and tech questions and stuff like that in the early days. So this is the first time I ever heard someone describing roles in the company as a game. I like it because I play video games as well. I actually used to play video games as well. No time right now. It's a very good description. I think it makes sense that you manage the task in a way that you give the task to the right people and not just give tasks to everyone and trying to be load balancing, whatever, doesn't matter who getting what. This is a very good idea. I'm wondering, as a features and a salesperson and a marketing person, you mentioned you need to prioritize all the time whose customers, what customers. So if you go to a customer and the customer says, oh my God, I love this. I'll buy it if you have this feature. What do you do? Do you tell them, yes, we have it. We're going to develop it. Or say, no, we don't have it right now, but we're going to develop it in the next six months. How do you play with this chicken and egg because you don't have it, but you want to sell it? 
Yeah. So look, I'll be honest, just from past experience, if somebody needs you to build something to be a customer, they're not a customer. And the reality is that this happens a lot with enterprises, right? Where they have this set of requirements. And if you meet those requirements, they'll give you the big deal. Awesome. Here's the thing. While you're building that set of requirements, you're actually distracted from real today customers who want what you have. You just haven't found them. Or maybe you haven't looked hard enough, or maybe you haven't qualified them enough. So at least in the earliest stages, you got to sell what's on the truck as much as you can, right? Obviously, you'll always have the chicken and egg problem. You have this with every user. Everybody says, it would be great if I could do this. Sure. But can they use the product today? Can they use even your minimum viable product now? Can they do something with it? If they can't do anything with it, then they're not a qualified customer unfortunately. So I think that's something that we had to internalize mentally, which I didn't have in my last company. And I think that's what's given us this advantage of being able and willing to say no to some people. We had an enterprise reach out to us a few weeks ago, and they wanted us to fill out a big RFP. And we said, thank you for the opportunity, but we're not doing that right now. And they were shocked. They were surprised. They're like, how can you say no? This could be the deal of a lifetime for you guys. And we said, we have other people right now who demand our attention and they might be much smaller, but we have to service them because if we can't service them, then we're definitely not going to get anywhere filling out your big RFP. So you got to just have that culture, man. You have that mentality. Let's talk about sales. So as a CEO and a founder, you're basically the main salesperson, but you cannot be the main salesperson all the time. So how you deal with the sales part and how do you let go or maybe you will let go and let other people do the selling? So you are correct. Founder is the main salesperson all the time, every day, constantly. But what you have to understand is eventually you have to take that hat off. The question is when and how. A lot of people make the mistake of bringing in an experienced sales leader early on. So this is a common issue. Smart, technical, product-minded founder, Builds a product, thinks it's awesome, can't sell it, doesn't want to sell it, doesn't want to learn how to sell, doesn't care. Brings in a high-paid, seasoned sales executive. And of course, they'll be able to do it, right? Why wouldn't they? Doesn't work. In fact, if you talk to most founders, I don't know what the statistic is, but most people's first sales leader or sales hire does not last very long. I think that will never stop happening. It's just a common issue. First-time founders make that mistake, especially often. But if you can land your first handful of deals, even one by yourself, you become orders of magnitude better at selecting the type of sales rep you do need when you want to hire them. When that is, different for every company. Could be your first 10 customers, could be your first 25. I don't know. But when you bring that person, you asked me about the how has to come from you because you close those first couple of deals. You know what they're asking for, why they're buying it, and what their pain is. You have to imprint that how onto that sales hire and they will take it and they will run with it. But if you give them nothing to work with, they're going to have a hard time and you're not setting them up for success. I've seen it before, happens all the time. So I actually never asked this question, but the way you answer it made me think about it. Do you think it's a good idea to bring a sales mentor? So you don't bring a sales leader, but you bring him as a mentor to you, not full-time, to help you learn how to sell, how to deal with customers. A sales advisor or an advisor who specializes in revenue is an excellent idea early on. They can give you the simple kind of three qualifying questions you need. They can look at your product and tell you what things you have to touch on. But 
they can only do so much. As a founder, and especially a technical founder, you have to get on the phone with people and you have to try and fail over and over again. So even if you get the biggest, best CRO in the world to be your advisor, they can teach you everything. But until you get on a call with a prospect and that prospect rejects you and you feel that pain or you feel that success of getting that deal, you simply won't be able to test this stuff in the field. So I agree with you. Sales advisor, great thing, great idea for early on, especially first time or early founders. It's not a silver bullet. You got to get on the phone with the customers. You have to talk to them. We have a lot of stress in our work. And the founder CEO, we have probably even more stress. And I'm sure there are sometimes bad days. So when you have a bad day, what do you do? Do you go meditate? Do you go to run? Do you go play video games? How do you get back to yourself? Here's the thing about a startup. The worst day at a startup is still better than the best day anywhere else. Okay. I would rather have a horrible week at a startup than a great day doing something else. It's just, if you've lived it, you know what it is. What do you do when you have a bad day? Go home. Or if you work from home, go to another room, leave the house, do something else. Here's the problem, man, in this remote work era. We don't stop. We never go home. When you used to work in an office, I used to work seven days a week. If I was having a bad day, you know what I would do? I would leave. I would just go home. I'd stop work. I'd be doing something else. But now that we work from home, many of us, we can't really just leave the company or leave the room. And turning off the computer is not enough. You're still in your environment, right? I don't have a good answer for you on this. But I think it's not for everyone. It's what you do. So for you, it's leaving the house. For somebody it could be something else. I play a lot of video games, man. A lot. So for me, if I'm having a bad day, I'm loading up Call of Duty or Elden Ring or Baldur's Gate, and I'm doing damage. That's what I do. It's not for everyone. But find the thing that makes you go forget about work and do that. It'll work every time. So you mentioned something that I think important, and it's actually close to my heart as well, is we not we never stop. When I used to work in an office, when you drive to the office or you drive from the office or you drive to a customer, this is your time to decompress, listen to music, audio books, talk to friends. But right now we jump from a call to call. We have no time to decompress. So we done our day, if we done our day, and we're like, oh my God, I feel like I just run a marathon because I never stopped. I never even went to the washroom or I ate between muted calls, for example, to grab something to eat. Great. If you will go back two years before you started one up, and you can change something. What advice or what would you change before I start the company? Well, what would I change if I could go back in time and do something differently in the early days? I think I would get something out even sooner. Some of the most successful companies, they get an MVP out as quickly as possible. And it's usually really bad. And it's supposed to be, right? Because the fastest you can get to feedback or the quickest you can get to feedback from a user, the more effective you can be at building the product. So the prevailing kind of wisdom is get a really shitty MVP out as quickly as possible. In our case, I think that's what we did. But if I could do it even sooner, I absolutely would. Because I think there's this constant sense of it has to be polished. It has to look good. People have to like it. You got to remember, man, those first three people you show it to, they're not going to be your immediate buyers. They're going to come back later. Maybe they'll convert, but they're looking at something that you should be embarrassed of. But this is cool, right? If you're not embarrassed by your MVP, you've waited too long to launch it. I think it's somebody from Y Combinator, but it's true, man. And the earlier you can get it out, the more chances you have to iterate, the better you can make it over time. So if I could do anything, I would have gotten that MVP out even 20% earlier 
because man, would that have made a big difference on that second and third and fourth iteration. But it is what it is, you know, you learn. We're going to transition to what I call a dark side. Everybody's listening. Dark side is when we ask what didn't go as expected, what went wrong and lesson learned. So George, please share some stories, not confidential stories, of course, about something that went wrong, maybe with the customers, maybe with people and what you learn from it. Early on in my career, when I would get rejected, whether it be by a customer, potential hire, a potential investor, anybody, I would tend to get very emotional because for any founder, especially a first-time founder, you start thinking like, whoa, what's wrong with me? What is this person saying? And it's all about you. And you don't really think that maybe it genuinely isn't a good fit. You don't want this person or you don't want this team or you don't want this company as a customer, partner, investor, whatever. And I think those can be in memory, some dark moments because they compound and you start drawing a line and you start crafting this narrative that overshadows the good. And you could have constant wins. A startup is a cycle of euphoric highs and devastating lows. It's constant. And what you want to do is you want to be in this numb center, right? You want to be in the middle. You want to be numb to all the good news and all the bad news. But if you overthink and over-internalize those negative moments, whether they're rejections from customers or partners or investors, whatever, you will start drawing this line that casts a shadow on everything else. And I've done that early in my career many times to a really bad degree. I don't do it anymore, but a lot of founders out there still do. They sit there and they meditate on these rejections and these moments and they try to create a narrative of why it's happening or whatever. And all I would say to that is this, nothing is too good or too bad ever, okay? Like you have to be in the middle. You gotta be like really numb, even to the good news. Okay, something great happened. You got that deal you really wanted, don't celebrate. Don't even mention it. Just be happy, feel it for two seconds and then move on. Because if you train yourself to be like that, to all the news, then even the negative stuff won't affect you just as much either. And I know it sounds like you're going to walk around feeling or looking jaded, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is nothing is either too good or too bad that happens throughout the day, especially not in this startup game. It's just business, all right? There's much more important stuff in life. So yeah, that that would be my, it's a personal feeling, it's a personal reflection, but I would give that advice to other founders if I could. I think it's a very good advice. The issue shall pass. George, Thank you very much. Great episode. A lot of wisdom, a lot of cool stuff. Thank you very much and good luck there. Thank you, my brother. You have a great week and thank you for having me. Great. Everybody's listening. Thank you very much and we'll see you in the next episode.